That's Debatable is sponsored by MB&G. MB&G are specialists in the esoteric world of vehicle and furniture warranty insurance, delivering quite marvellous customer service, prompt claims payment, and a highly developed understanding of how to deliver these products in a way that is both compliant with the regulations and attractive to customers. and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. Great to have you all back. I hope everyone enjoyed the episode uh, last week with our colleague, Dr. Bryn Harris, which I thought was excellent, if I'm allowed to say that about our own podcast, Tom. It was a very good episode. It really gave an insight, I think, Ben, into uh, the, well, I was going to say the depths of what lawyers do. That's the wrong phraseology, but the, uh, the extent and the depth of what our legal team do and of what the uh, the multiple lawyers supporting the Free Speech Union uh, are up to uh, and and how they dovetail with you and the case team, I think. Um, so it was, a, it was a great episode. One of the things that came across to me, I think, is the, is the tension between the kind of the tactical stuff that we're doing day by day to help individual people or, as in the case of Signature Clinic, individual sort of groups of people um, versus the strategic stuff. And we were talking about uh, if we could write a law to protect freedom of speech in Britain, and we had carte blanche to do that, what, what would it be? Um, so if you've not listened to the episode, go, go back. Um, do go back and listen. I thought Bryn had a really interesting answer to that that question. Um, but there is this, you know, the, 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 we do have to work a, on both of these tracks, don't we, where we're helping individual members of ours, and I know many of our listeners um, are people that we've helped in the past, um, but also trying to change the you know, the, the battlefield on which we're fighting, trying to uh, stop bad legislation getting through or knock out the worst elements of it, like the uh, the legal but harmful aspects of the Online Safety Act, um, and uh, even get some pro-free speech legislation uh, on the books. So it's an interesting, interesting conversation, I thought. Well, that, and, and it's an ongoing discussion we have within uh, the FSU and the, the staff team at the FSU, because there's no organization quite like us in structure and how we're pieced together, doing the casework, doing the legislative affairs work, doing the events such as our Belfast event on, on Friday that's just gone. And w- when we were um, thinking about how to market the Free Speech Union, we had a, a long debate as to which one of those wins. It's quite evident mm. that many of our members really are fo- focused in on getting that the good laws in and knocking out the worst yep. laws and that's that's really quite right and then we've got a very significant minority of members who come to us asking for our help and this of course leads us straight on i think to our first segment ben which is the new website um where we did indeed have a, a big debate internally about what should be the first thing that you see when you come to freespeechunion.org, how should that uh, present itself? What should our um, our front door, as it were, actually say first and foremost? And uh, I really rather like the new design and the new thought process behind the website. I'm biased, of course. Um, but the first thing you see when you go to our new website, and we encourage everyone who listens to this podcast to have a visit, not least of all because you'll get easy access to all of the uh, the, the back catalogue of the podcast and other, other things that have gone on at the Free Speech Union since we started. But the first thing you see is someone we've helped, which is Simon Isherwood, and a little video uh, explaining his story. 
and that quote at the top of the website saying that uh, contacting you, Ben, <laughs> I guess, indirectly mm. contacting the uh, the case team was um, what the best thing he did ever did, and, and the money he now spends uh, every month to remain a member and and have our support if he if he needs it is the best money he spends every month. And I think that that kind of first message that you get when you land on the website is really striking, uh, really sums up what we're there for and what you're there for, Ben, and what the case team are there for, what the legal team are there for. Uh, and so I think it's a really good leap forward, actually, in how we present ourselves as the as a next phase of the free speech union. I'm just looking through now while we're talking at the um, the video page. So there's basically masses and masses and masses of stuff there from all of the public events we've done, uh, interviews, book launches, panel discussions on all sorts of stuff from uh, disinformation and the freedom to dissent, uh, the origins of woke, how to fight cancel culture and win, uh, free speech and the right to protest. There's a gigantic amount of um Content, I think, is the word we're supposed to use now, Tom. Content. That's right. On there. Uh, that's, uh, <laughs> so I'm in touch with You're not a TikToker, uh, are you? <laughs> <laughs> not naturally, no. Uh, but there's, there's masses on there, uh, really interesting stuff. So uh, if you've uh, if you've missed out on going to something in the last few years uh, and want to go back and watch it, it will be on our new website. It's very exciting. Um, and, uh, yeah, all the, the podcast episodes as well. And, uh Gosh, I mean, there's just masses. I'm, I'm looking through it now. There's, there's just a, a huge amount here. Um, and also, we have various uh, resources. So that includes things like uh, FAQs documents. So if you're, uh, you know, you've been told at work that you need to start doing unconscious bias training, for instance, there's a, there's a guide on our website uh, that members can access that will give you some tips on how to push back against that without being fired. Um, and uh, we, we've got... A raft of material of, the, of that nature helping helping people navigate some of the more common workplace or university situations that we we encounter um yeah so there's loads there absolutely loads there and um also information about our grant giving program as well for uh, students and uh, young people and critically we've got um some of those materials the faqs the briefing materials are now paywalled so that's a member benefit even more explicitly now some of those materials to ensure that there's enough teaser information for for folks who who haven't signed up but to get people to join and to really benefit from some of those frequently asked questions the other element i like is the sort of four pillars of freedom of expression uh, that we have four videos touching upon four pillars being freedom of speech, academic freedom, freedom of expression, and freedom of the press. Um, and freedom of expression would then include sort of the, the freedom of religion and, and such like. And specific videos that focus on and cover those topics. And I think, again, there's some really clear thinking behind how what areas of free speech, what areas of free expression we cover and how to categorize them as, as a data person. I, I love getting good, nice, neat categories. But um, alongside that, we've got some some great videos and some great counters as well that show how many members we have and how many cases we have. And I've just finished the quarterly stats work that we do on our case system, which is obviously completely separate from the website, our case system, our case management system. And we've now gone over 2,000 300 cases uh, that have been looked at by the FSU since um, 
uh, February 2020. And Ben, I think you're very up to speed with what the latest trends are. Um, but, you, you know, the two things that stuck out, well, I, I would say there are three things that stuck out this quarter for me. The first yeah. is that it's a clean 40% now of our cases uh, of our last year, last full year, 2023, relate to gender and sex. And most of those in turn are transgender. So it was early 30s. It's gone up to 35. Now it's 40% relate to gender and sex. And most of those are transgender on the transgender issue. The second thing I would say is this relentless growth of free speech cases that, that concern regulators of different kinds. We've seen mm. multiple healthcare regulators. We see other professional regulators, financial regulators, even sports regulators, all coming into our casework in different forms, different shapes. So we talk about the workplace and the fact that people are penalized directly in the workplace by their direct employer. But there's another layer of free speech uh, suppression, if you will, coming from the regulators who stand behind those firms. And I think they're both terrifying each other. You know, the firms are scared of the regulators and the regulators yeah. are scared of the regulated firms. They want to stay ahead of the game when it comes to equity, diversity, inclusion, and these other speech codes that are getting uh, more and more widespread in the workplace. So that's the second thing we're seeing, that evidence of it in our casework. And the last thing since Israel-Palestine, uh, the, the Israel-Palestine or the war in Gaza started uh, on the 7th of October is that we've seen an uptick in the number of cases that have involved the Metropolitan Police. Uh, and again, we've talked about the, that in prior episodes, but you can really see an uptick in the, the number of cases where uh, people are concerned about this this dual policing that we're seeing in London yep. and more broadly in the United Kingdom, actually. Uh, so those are the three trends that I, I, I saw, Ben. On, on the 40% stat for um, gender and sex, so you know, as you said, the bulk of that is trans, it's probably worth stressing that we track... Is it is it dozens of issues that are getting people in trouble in in some way for what they've said? I don't know what the absolute figure is, but but there are a lot of different um, issues yes. that we keep track of in our data. So for any one of those things to be anywhere near forty percent is incredible because that includes everything from the environment to immigration to Israel Palestine, uh, and so on and so on. Um, and so that 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 really is a gigantic figure. Um, for it to be that high, and and I'm don't, I don't think anyone would be particularly surprised by that if you're you know listening to this podcast and you're a member of the Free Speech Union or you're you're just paying attention to these issues in the news. I, I think that probably wouldn't be a surprise. But uh, so what's the what's the absolute number? I'm putting your your um, mental maths on test now. Tom. What's you're the putting my number? mental maths on the test. Um, so the absolute number is forty um, percent of our total number of cases but you have to adjust the total number of cases for those that we classify as as conduct and behavior i.e not okay. pure free speech so a significant yep. proportion of our cases uh in fact i think it's up to 17 percent now so if we say that uh 17 percent of 2000 uh, 2000 of 2300 is uh, 391 so we have to take those away and then take 40% of what's left. We end up with 764 cases or thereabouts, 765 cases relating to transgender or to pronouns. That's uh, uh, yeah. the other main subcategory of gender and sex that we have um, all related to the same idea and area. 
But I did have a brainwave over the weekend, Ben. I've, I've decided that we classify the working uh, restrictions that happen. So people get suspended, people get investigated, people have a disciplinary, and in the worst cases, they get dismissed. And as a case goes on, we tend to sort of add the next layer of um, sanction to yeah. our data but we don't recognize that the sanctions are getting worse. We kind of equally rank an investigation, a disciplinary, a suspension, and a dismissal. I want to go back through the data and say, do you know what? If dismissal is listed, that's the worst. So that is what that case is about. If it goes up to suspension, it's suspension. So then we can actually get a sense of how these cases in the employment world are tracking through to the worst sanction. We haven't yet done that in a way I would like us to do. So that's my brainwave I had uh, in the bath over the weekend. <laughs> I, I think, um, you know, if you're on that trajectory and you're being investigated, it's so it's so often is the case that the outcome is basically predetermined. Not, not always, but it's so often the case that if you're being investigated, then it's going to disciplinary, uh, then you've been dismissed, and then say you're appealing against that dismissal. Um, <clears throat> it's so often is the case that the employer has basically just decided to get rid of you because you said something about trans and, it, and they just think it's easier to get rid of you. Um, and of course, what we're proving actually is that that isn't the easy thing to do. Um, and that just sacking people without a reasonable uh, legal basis for doing so is actually going to rebound in a, in a pretty um, pretty catastrophic way. If you look at the case of, uh, of Carl that we've been talking about with uh, Lloyd's, uh, having to pay something like eight hundred thousand pounds after dismissing him, um, so I think it, it just goes to show that there is this immense countervailing pressure, um, and that, that just getting rid of somebody is no longer the easiest thing to do. Thank goodness. And it's not just the legal element of it. Yeah. You're absolutely right. It's the fact that the employer is is both misinterpreting or deliberately misinterpreting the law, but also bypassing due process or thinking yeah. that due process doesn't matter anymore. So it's that toxic combination of an employer who doesn't see where the law lies or, or fully interpret the law correctly, and on the other hand, treats their employer or sorry, employee unfairly according to their own processes and appeal processes and such like. And therefore, it's, it's lose-lose for the employee if faced with an employer who has that mindset. It is. We we see some absolutely uh, well, some real shockers with uh, employers not following their own rules um, and bungling disciplinary procedures of, of various kinds. And of course, what that means, although it's horrendously stressful if you're going through that and you're on the receiving end of it, um, the worse those procedural problems are, um, and the more unfair the process. Well, it has the perverse result of meaning you've got more to play with as it escalates, and you've got um, you, you're basically building up your case and your evidence. Um, so it, it it can be helpful, but but that's not really very much conversation when you're when you're going through a process that just feels horrendously unfair and prejudged and loaded against you. Um, what's our what's our total win rate now, Tom? Oh, that's such a good question. Our win rate is really pleasing. Uh, when we know where a case has got to, and this is my normal caveat, Ben, uh, which you you and probably get irritated by me <laughs> adjusting our stats for these caveats, but when we know the outcome of a case, we're up to seventy four percent. So nearly yes. nearly three quarters of our cases are a win. 
uh, <clears throat> for the Free Speech Union, for our member. Uh, I think that's a fantastic win rate, and it's trending. It's it's always been high. It's trending a point up or so in the last six months. So, it, you know, it it seems that with the growth of the um, the legal team and and the case team and the experience that we've had, we're just we're just getting better results for our members relentlessly. So yeah, that whole point about the new website really showcasing what we can do for our members, I think is really important. But that's a great yeah. win rate, really is. And that there's light at the end of the tunnel if you're at the early stage of uh, of one of these very stressful processes. It's worth saying as well, Ben, that we've taken out of that stat cases that we refer on. And of course, a yes. lot of those end up being won as well. So we might refer people on to maybe... A, a, a solicitor or a lawyer who will just do the has a has a particular expertise and is probably better for our member and for that situation, or onto a trades union who may be better able to help at that stage of the process. So yep. we're always thinking what's best for the member, what's best for the member's situation, and whether there's an alternative expertise, an alternative organisation. Um, that is better for them in their very specific situation, which is why, as always, Ben, when people come to us and say, "What should I do?" the answer is always, "It depends." We need to know. We need to know the facts of the case. It really does depend, as it does in all professionals, or sorry, in all professions. The answer is never a carte blanche, this or that. It's always, "It depends on the situation." Um, but it's a very pleasing number, I think, 74 percent. Well, uh, Tom, we have, we have a big question now, don't we? Which is yes. a question posed by Ed West in The Spectator. Is Britain a free country? What's your answer to that, Tom? Well, my answer to that, my, my thought process behind that is is really to, to, ref, to reflect back some of what Ed West begins that article with, which is it used to be you would hear the phrase, it's a free country. You would hear that mm. in all sorts of circumstances, uh, amongst all sorts of friendship groups, professional groups. If, for whatever reason, someone was being berated or sanctioned or, or even in a semi-humorous way being told off, the response would come, well, it's a free country. Come on, get over yourself. Yeah, I don't hear that. I, I, and I think Ed West draws attention to that, makes that point. We, we don't say it, number one. We don't hear it. Because mm. whether consciously or, or subconsciously or semi-consciously, probably in my case, um, we, we, we've soaked in this new um, atmosphere around us of cancel culture. And we don't feel we're being honest if we turn around and say that Britain's a free country. There's too much going on at the moment with our institutions, particularly with the police. What can we do? What can't we do? Um, you know, I, I, just over the weekend, there was a, a police officer um, stopped a Christian who was singing, I don't know whether it was a hymn or a song, a Christian song outside in the street, and a volunteer police officer uh, said, you can't do that. You know, that is that is not, that doesn't feel like a free country anymore. There's a tiny little thing that happened this weekend. So that's my initial thought around that then. It, used to, it, it was so ubiquitous, wasn't it, that expression? It was almost like a verbal tick. Um and interestingly, one of the other things we're going to come on to talk about in a moment, in the video of uh, the Piano Man case that we'll, we'll come on to in a moment, I think he actually says it's a free country, which is quite a nice uh, nice coincidence. Um, but yeah. yes, I, I think that there is this feeling of a um, heavy 
authoritarian hand uh, resting on all of us at the moment and has been you know perhaps for the last five to ten years um, and one of the points that Ed West makes with I'm afraid terrible effectiveness uh, is the contrast between the uh, severe sentences that people face for various speech crimes versus the uh, you know, very, very, very slight rap on the knuckles you might get for, say, physically assaulting somebody. Um, and so he points to the examples of uh, former police officers who'd been sending uh, messages to each other, memes in a private WhatsApp group. Um, he, he says they were lucky to escape jail. Uh, somebody was sentenced to 20 weeks in prison for sending offensive jokes in a WhatsApp chat with friends. Uh, and, and these cases go on and on and on. Uh, Non-crime hate incidents, people being, uh, you know, having the police turn up at the houses because they'd question the teaching of gender gender ideology in schools. Uh, this stuff is absolutely omnipresent. Every week there will be some story of this, um, and then you you contrast that with, uh, uh, well, as I as I said, you contrast that with treatment of violent crimes or antisocial behaviour and so on. Uh, in the real world, uh, it's just it, it's it's just extraordinary. So I think it's very difficult to say that Britain is still a free country because it it, it doesn't have that culture any longer of um, easygoing, irreverent. I, I think, or if if it does, it's on life support. Um, unfortunately, easygoing, light-hearted, uh, yeah. look on the bright side take people take take the best interpretation of what people are saying and doing has always been uh, or had always been the context in which people said we live in a free country um and you know i think in all sorts of ways uh that article hits on this problem it talks about section 127 of the communications act in 2003 yeah. in particular as being a problem and you know I come back to this phrase, the chilling effect that it all has on free speech. The article lists, particularly in relation to that section 127, all the things that have happened. But it comes back to what you said, Ben. All the, what about all the things that haven't happened, all the things that haven't been said, all the jokes that someone might have made, they just decided they didn't want the hassle. Yeah. Because now we have this speak up, culture where even the slightest off-color joke you could be in the pub and one of the friends there is the new puritan is yeah. according to the new orthodoxy holding you accountable and shutting you down and that chilling effect is real and it's it's ubiquitous it's every omnipresent to use the phrase you used a few moments ago ben it's an omnipresent feeling amongst all groups of people in all circumstances not just social media it's just easier not to say it. But the off-color remark, comedy, all of these things are the spice of life. They're the things that, that, um, that, that make life fun. You know, all the, all the, all the jokes that we, we grew up with and, and the ways of looking at the world and, and what, our, what our best comedians, our best art houses have produced are often what one might say in inverted commas is off color and I, I think that that is the underlying reality that's been lost and so yeah is britain a free country good question 
I think one of the biggest challenges that the Free Speech Union faces is not just in winning these battles for our members. It's not just in changing the law. Um, It's something that's more diffuse than that. And it's rebuilding a culture of freedom of speech, which is something that will take a generation, I think, um, of keeping those embers alive where they're still going and of teaching or reteaching a younger generation coming through universities now what freedom of speech is, why it matters, uh, and why it can't be an optional extra for a functioning democratic society, uh, why it, it is the most fundamental part of Britain and Western democracies. Um, so I, I think that that's a diffuse objective. It's something that's not easy to measure. It's not something we can collect data on, really. Um, but nonetheless, I think that's that's what the project has to be and each case we win um, each student we're able to support with their initiative promoting free speech at university each of these little things moves the dial um, and we need to keep plugging away well i think the next story ben is a, is actually a, in that vein a bit of good news a bit of uh, dipping back into that culture that we want to rebuild more broadly around freedom of expression and i think as you said earlier it's this little segment now that we'll move on to called the piano man and this concerns uh, a gentleman called brendan kavanagh who may be known to a few londoners uh, and uh, people who watch youtube because you may bump into him in st pancras either on your way to eurostar uh, or in my case, on the way to swimming, because uh, we have a Sunday swimming session up there at uh, St. Pancras and King's Cross, and I walk past this piano uh, when I'm going there, and occasionally I, I see people using it. I don't think I've seen Brendan Kavanagh using it. He's a, He does the boogie-woogie and pieces like that, and I don't think it's meant to be pronounced quite like that, but the boogie-woogie. Uh, he is great fun, and he always attracts a crowd, and he's a showman. And the piano, I think, was donated by Elton John. It's many of our, of our railway stations have these um, pianos for anyone to play on. He was doing that as normal. And the, this, this group of uh, Chinese tourists uh, were behind him and he was chatting away. I think he muddled them up as Japanese tourists initially. And they took umbrage at, uh, sort of halfway through uh, the, the, the various videos have now gone viral. They took umbrage at the fact that they were appearing on camera because he live streams his performances and gets people involved to make them fun. And they said, stop filming. And uh, it sort of escalated as well when uh, another gentleman came along and said, uh, and accused him at one point of of touching one of the women who was present uh, because he reached out to to, to touch the flag and, and, and they were, they were, it was, the exchange was becoming a bit heated. Anyhow, uh, it all escalated kind of from nowhere. Police were called, or the, tra- the transport police, the uh, British transport police came over. And quite rightly, one of them said, look, in, in Britain, you, you're in a public place. You don't have a right to privacy in a public place. And uh, Brendan Kavanagh is doing what he, what he normally does, which he's, he's live streaming his, uh, his, his fun that he's having with the public listening. What scared me, though, Ben, was the second police officer kind of supported the first, but at the same time mm. said, um, having spoken to the uh, the Chinese group that had started to complain, said, oh, you're going to need to make sure you don't upload that video. And that was an interesting thing. And 
my my the positive here is that Brendan Kavanagh, straight off the bat, yeah, he's a he's a musician. He's not he's not a freedom fighter, but he said, "This is Britain, not communist China." If I want to upload this video, I'm going to upload this video, and there it's was a free that country, instinctive Tom. response. Sorry, Ben. Yeah, it's a free country. It's a free country. I think he. I don't know if he used those exact words, but effectively, yes, that's what he was saying. I think he did actually. I, I'll have to rewatch it, but I th- I'm pretty sure he did say that. Yeah, uh, which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, he did. He said, "Listen, we're in Britain. We're in a public space. It's a free country." So you're absolutely right. Yeah, that's what, that's what we want to hear. That's, that's what, what we, we want, want to hear. Um, and and it's such an interesting case because, of course, this isn't someone speaking in a workplace. This isn't a, this isn't about um, speech. It's about playing a piano in a public place and and having a live stream of that, as you have done, as you have done for many weeks, months, years. Uh, but he pushed right back. And what's fascinating, again, really positive about this story, is he obviously did a bit of research and discovered that uh, Xi Jinping doesn't particularly like Winnie the Pooh. But I think Winnie the Pooh's banned in China, actually, uh, because people have used Winnie the Pooh to mock the president of China. So anyway, he's now back playing the piano. I think the piano was quarantined for a while by the police. It's now back in action with a Winnie the Pooh toy and a Winnie the Pooh picture watching him while he live streams his piano performances, his boogie woogie. So there you go. It is a free country sometimes, Ben. There is a, there is a positive spin at the end. So th- this is the classic, classic um, Streisand effect in action, isn't it? It is. Uh, where they've ended up drawing massive amount of attention to themselves from a video that, I don't know, would have been watched by tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. has probably now been seen in the press by, well, low millions, I'd guess. Um, USA so Today I, reported I, on it. Right, okay. So I'm just, uh, ironically, I'm just looking at the Streisand effect on Wikipedia because I, I couldn't remember... Uh, what what the initial incident was that led it to be called that because it's now we're now so far removed so so ironically the term has become decoupled from the event that that created this and anyway I'm on the Wikipedia page and it says there is an equivalent saying in Chinese which I'm going to attempt to pronounce Cheng Yu which means oh. wishing to cover more conspicuous so it's exactly that wishing to cover it up and it's become far more conspicuous. So there we are, according to Wikipedia. It never works. Never Trying works. to cover it up never works. And of course, this has now gone viral within the Chinese community in the United Kingdom as well, who are all sort of saying, go, uh, Mr. Kavanagh, do, do your thing. Um, he appeared, Brendan appeared on Talk TV. Uh, he's been on various segments. He's been in the press. As I say, he was in USA Today. Uh, the, the Chinese community in the UK are absolutely in support of him. He's got the Winnie the Pooh uh, icons around him. And even in China, I, I've heard that it's uh, the social media, such as they have it in mainland China, is rather mocking this group um, that, uh, that, that, that were trying to shut him down. It never works. It ne- unless you are an utterly totalitarian state. But thank God, we're not there yet. There is some real positive to come out of this. Can I can I play devil's advocate though, Tom? Go for it. That I, I can imagine circumstances in which I would uh, instinctively side with somebody in public who said, "I'm passing through a train station. I don't want to be on your live stream or film." I can see that argument, but 
again, it's this public, you're in a public place. There is a right to privacy and it is a fundamental right. So I, and, and I think this is where rights come up against each other, don't they? The right to expression, the right to priv- the right for freedom of expression, and the right to privacy. Striking a balance. How do they, how do you, yeah. how do they balance out? Yes, if you're having, if your three-year-old's having a meltdown in public, <laughs> and that is forever <laughs> captured on some random live stream, for you then to, yeah, when they get to 18 years old, you could keep it and, and show them that that was you in some pancreas station. You'd probably just look away though, wouldn't you? I mean, I've had yeah. this actually thinking about it while we were talking about it where, you know, someone's obviously filming something and I think I don't really want to be an extra and whatever that is, you know, without any knowledge of what it, of what they're filming or what it's going to be about. So you just turn away, don't you? If I fall off Tower Bridge one day, uh, walking into the city or walking, you know, in, in another direction or fall off another bridge and I'm never heard of again. There must be thousands of films, photographs, cameras that have captured me walking past, probably with a grimace on my face, you know, those tourists everywhere here in the middle of London. Well, of course they are, it's Tower Bridge. And mm. I, my, my image is captured forever. Yeah, a hundred thousand yeah. times. I don't know where it is. Uh, but you can't have a society with public places and have an expectation that you're not going to be caught on camera. You know, maybe you have a right not to be harassed. Well, you do. You have a right not to be harassed. So someone's sort of yeah. poking a camera right in your nose and and, and, yeah. and and really getting in your way as you're in the public space getting on with your business. But you don't have a sort of right passively not to be caught on camera. Uh, otherwise, yeah. no one could ever pull out a, an iPhone. I mean, it, it just wouldn't work. There's no no question of harassment in this case. It's entirely just that he's he's gone to the station. He's doing what he always does. Yeah, uh, and they've objected to it, and in the process, drawn massive attention to themselves. Well, there was a there was a worry. There was a there there's the Chinese group's side of the story was initially, oh, he'd been hogging the piano for forty minutes, and they wanted to to have a go on it, and of course, they had to be standing right. nearby, and they got caught on camera. Um, but I know, and I'm not quite sure where that he said, she said, or gonna sort of uh, debate got to. But in some ways, that's not the essence of the issue here. It's the the essence of the issue um, was that the, the, there was an expectation he shouldn't do what he's been doing forever. And my my biggest concern was when the second police officer said, "You mustn't upload this to your yes. YouTube channel." Um, but, uh, you know, even if YouTube took it down now, it's, it's on a thousand channels. So, so there's no getting away from it. Well, we want to talk now about a topic we discussed, must've been before Christmas, which is Ayan Hirsi Ali's conversion to Christianity. Um, and, uh, you've picked a quote of the week, I think. I did. It was a thought I had over the weekend, Ben. It's, Read this to us. So, so um, it links in exactly as you say with the Ian Hersielli converting to Christianity. We talked about whether it was how deep that conversion went. I said I think it goes all the way. It's quite a deep, you know, a true conversion. You were a bit more doubtful, but this quote I think falls on your side of the camp, Ben. Uh, it's from Professor mm. Richard Dawkins. He wrote uh, the diary section of this week's Spectator magazine, which is a sort of lots of segments, uh, not necessarily related, of thoughts uh, about what's going on in the world. And Professor Richard Dawkins is talking about Ian Hersi Ali. 
and actually went up to her. And the quote is, I asked her whether she really believes in fundamental Christian tenets, such as the afterlife, Jesus's resurrection, and his parthenogenic, parthenogenetic provenance. Now, that was a new word to me. That means virgin birth, basically. <laughs> she doesn't. I got the strong impression her Christianity is a matter of politics more than belief. Christianity is our best bulwark against Islam. Well, if rooting for benevolent Christianity in preference to malign Islam is all it takes to be a Christian, I'm a Christian too. There's more to it than that, and I certainly haven't done her justice here. Fortunately, a public meeting has been arranged in New York this May under the title Dissident Dialogues, where we can thrash it out, and I'm looking forward to it. So Richard Dawkins there adores Ian Hersielli, by the way, complete ally of her, but going back to the sort of the new atheist that we talked about before, he mm. very much comes down on your side there, Ben, and seems to have it directly from Ian's uh, direct speech that she doesn't necessarily believe absolutely in, in some of the more fundamental Christian truths, but believes it is a benevolent form or benevolent structure of thinking, belief, framework for living your life um, that where she's found a home. What and, and so I suspect that's that's her way of finding a home there. But I think that's going to be a really interesting ongoing discussion, uh, picking up on a lot of what you said pre previously. This is one of those things where my 20-year-old self and my now 32-year-old self are in violent disagreement with each other. Um, and I, I used to just completely take the Richard Dawkins' new atheist view that um, Christianity had presided over a dark age that had retarded the growth of Western civilization and... Uh, the sooner we we cut off that past, the better the future would be. Um, and I now recognise that as um, youthful nonsense. <laughs> um, so I, I've, as politicians say, been on a journey. Uh, <laughs> that awful, awful expression. Um, so it, 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 it's interesting. I've been listening to, um, if I can plug another podcast, uh, the Surprising Rebirth podcast by uh, Justin Briley, Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. Um, and I think he's now on to 11 or 12 episodes or something. Um, and so he, he's charting the, uh, the story of the collapse of new atheism uh, in the 2010s, the uh, arising of identity politics and woke, um, and then the the backlash to the sexual revolution uh, and the argument that Tom Holland has made extraordinarily persuasively in his book Dominion that I think Tom you're reading at the moment. That's right. Um, yeah. About the the innate Christianness of Western civilization and the fact that my 20-year-old self would have entirely rejected, but I now uh, now accept completely that um, all of the um, liberal democratic Western tradition that we all enjoy is, is rooted entirely in uh, a Christian sensibility, even if not in Christian belief. So I think what's interesting is Ian Hersey Ali has, has recognised the Christianness of the West, mm. um, but is not, or it, it seems is struggling to make the sort of foundational leap of faith that's required, which incidentally is how I frame it. Suspect it's of no interest to anybody, but that's how I describe my own view as well. Mm. Um, so, I, I have a lot of sympathy with her and where she's where she's coming from. Um, but I can see why um, Christians who are church going Christians, which I am not, uh, would look at this with some skepticism and uh, perhaps not welcome somebody who is converting for, um, if you like, geopolitical reasons. What I find interesting about the Tom Holland book 
and I haven't finished it yet. So I might be misrepresenting the hypothesis. Is that the form of Christianity that that wins over the centuries, and it is centuries, and it is also a history that repeats. It's a history that rhymes all the way through. This battle between a very, very um, uh, austere, puritanical version of Christian truths versus a more pragmatic and attractive, a broader, attractive Christianity uh, is a battle that carries on and on and on between different sects and different groups across Christendom. And also is a balance between the Pope or the Popes, of course, for certain times in history, and the Holy Roman Emperor. So the, the, sort of the, the state authority yeah. and the church authority are muddled up, but then are, are, are in, are find their, their balance. And in the midst of that, you've also got the sort of the puritanical, the purist versus the pragmatic. And all the way through, the reason that the sort of, the, I think the hypothesis is, is that the pragmatic gets society to a better place, but it's sharpened by the puritanical moments. And yet you always come back to the main sweep of being a, a, a broader church, as it were, a broader, more accepting church gets you to a better place. And that tension plays out over centuries and centuries in a way that it, it maybe hasn't in Islam and, and not just Islam, but in other forms of religion in other parts of the world. Um, so again, I think, you know, Ian perhaps is in a, a very noble line of people who've taken a pragmatic approach and said, I'm going to take the best that this uh, way of thinking, this Western thought process, the best that it has to offer. And I'm going to reject the more puritanical elements or the elements that might set me on a path that is more puritanical. Um, so maybe I'd misrepresented. I, I can see it as a noble line, but I can also see it as a noble lie <laughs> where you take the view, which is basically my view, that um, Christianity for all sorts of reasons that's, that's been explained by people far more eloquent than I am um, has all sorts of socially constructive progressive effects so whether that's protecting the rights of women I heard an interview with uh, Louise Perry talking about about this um, just the other day that was very interesting um, uh, and how uh, the, the danger that feminists face in taking the handmaid's tail view of Christianity and sort of soaring off the branch of the tree on which they're sitting because actually if you're not concerned with protecting the vulnerable from the powerful from the physically stronger uh, if you don't presuppose that it's very difficult or if not impossible to see why there would be a feminist movement so um I think that there is something to be said for taking the view that that Christianity has all sorts of socially desirable benefits, um, even if those benefits seem to be obscure. Um, the fact that, for instance, our politics is is couched entirely in terms of protecting groups of people from harm and identifying harms and trying to balance rights against harms and so on, um, <clears throat> and so so there is a noble lie in saying, well, you know, a Christian belief even if it's a very very soft fuzzy one now is better than having nothing and i think again that seems to be what ian hersey ali has come to decide as well because i've not really heard a convincing statement of faith from her um nor would one be extracted from me um but there is a pragmatic argument for it um for a society that prohibits cousin marriage, that has an idea of social progress, that wants to protect the weak from the strong, and so on. 
One thing I'm battling with at the moment is is cliches. Um, because I was going to say, you know, nature, nature abhors a vacuum and sound terribly um, trite. Uh, and I've been thinking about cliches and terms of speech that, that are at first reading trite or sound uh, empty. And I think there's a real challenge for us to fill up these things that are seem to be standalone, seem to be truths that stand with the test of time, and there's another one, uh, and and we come back to, to refill them with meaning, because um, I think nature does abhor a vacuum, and this is what we've seen. If you do take out yeah. the best elements of Christianity, it's filled with something else. It's filled with this far worse woke religion, this woke mind virus. I love that phrase. That's a good way of getting meaning injected back into a cliche. But uh, we're constantly battling, I think, with our language to to re-inject meaning into eternal truths, things that, that, have, that, have, that hold us together, and to go down a little deeper, a little more profound, uh, and to attract, be more attractive to people who hear us say it, those around us, whether it's family, friends, people we're writing for or speaking for, and to then engage in a new way. So we're not going to be saying anything new. We're going to be coming back to some fairly basic things, but trying to find a, a better way of doing it. Um, so that's a bit of a bit of a mind scramble, a bit of a, a word salad, Ben, but I don't know if that made any sense. Can I read a short passage of Chesterton? He said, when a religious scheme is shattered, as Christianity was shattered, it is not merely the vices that are let loose. The vices are indeed let loose and they wander and do damage, but the virtues are let loose also and the virtues wander more wildly and the virtues do more terrible damage. And if that is not a description of a movement obsessively concerned with protecting a vulnerable group from harm, i.e. the trans rights movement, at any cost, I don't know what is. G.K. Chesterton gets it right again and again and again, doesn't he? Yeah. It's such a, a fantastic turnaround of what one might think. The virtues are what we should be frightened of. But, um, well, Tom, I don't know about you, but I'm not going to come up with anything wiser than that <laughs> in the next few minutes. So I think I'm tempted to leave it there. Yeah, one thing I was going to just add is a real plug for, again, a podcast that I've been listening to and that was also mentioned in our weekly newsletter um, and it's called uh, Climate Change on Trial, and it's about Mark Stein versus Professor Mann. It's a defamation case. Wonderful podcast because they're daily uh, uh, sending out an hour-long podcast from effectively as good as from the courtroom. It's happening right now. And I think it's number six in the science podcasts for Apple. So uh, I just, I've just been really enjoying it. It's been mentioned in the weekly newsletter. And um, so I just wanted to, to mention that. But yes, I wish all our listeners a fantastic week and we will speak to you next week. Goodbye. <laughs>